0: Okay, wait, wait, just a second. got to plug this. <laughs> it's It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 11th, 2009. Despite everything that Microsoft has tried to do about it, pretty much anybody who is serious about creating a website is probably already using Dreamweaver, whether it's an older version by Macromedia or one of the Creative Suite versions from Adobe. There are, of course, those competing programs such as Microsoft's front page and even Adobe's now discontinued Go Live. But as far as I'm concerned, there's simply nothing better than Dreamweaver if your intent is to produce a feature-rich, standards-compliant website. And the CS4 version brings Dreamweaver users completely into the Adobe camp. You may remember that Adobe acquired Macromedia in 2005. It was an all-stock transaction valued at about $3.4 billion. At the time, Macromedia had the best web development tool on the market, and Adobe had previously acquired GoLive systems. Adobe GoLive was an interesting program, but it really couldn't compete with Macromedia's Dreamweaver. So Adobe did what it always seems to do. It bought the best application it could find and started integrating that application with its existing products. Four years ago, Adobe cited the passion, creativity, and technology of two leading-edge companies— and it promised to continue to drive innovations that help people and organizations everywhere communicate better. To that, I have just two words to say. Promise kept. Possibly the most significant improvement in the latest version of Dreamweaver is Live View. In previous editions of the application, users could select a preview mode that would show more or less what the page was going to look like, But if you had JavaScript or other interactive elements, they were not rendered. Now, Live View allows users to design a page almost as if they're working in the browser. And you still have immediate access to the code. If you modify the code, the changes are immediately reflected in the rendered display. Another absolutely huge improvement for anyone who wants access to embedded JavaScript and cascading stylesheet files is the enhanced and expanded code view. By default, the code view displays the page's source code, but a single mouse click shows and allows you to edit any first-level embedded stylesheet or JavaScript file. And a new code navigator, which initially seems to be more of an annoyance than a feature, can be modified slightly so that it pops up only when requested. And once you've done that, you will be delighted by what it allows you to do. The ability to integrate data from one HTML page in another page dynamically is yet another technological breakthrough for a high-level program such as Dreamweaver. Programmers have been able to accomplish these kinds of tasks for years, But now you don't need to be a programmer, just a reasonably intelligent human with a good idea. Dreamweaver CS4 writes better cascading stylesheet code than previous versions did. Dreamweaver has been a good performer when it comes to complying with standards established by the World Wide Web Consortium, also known as the W3C. But it has sometimes fallen just a little short of the goal. And the code still isn't perfect but it's far, far better than any of the code created by any of its competitors. How good is the code? Well, here's an example. I used the W3C's HTML Tidy on this week's page, and it displayed six warnings and two informational messages. No errors. None. Zero. And of the six warnings, one was my own coding error. I have since fixed that one. And five showed deficiencies in code that had been provided to me by PayPal, not one error by Dreamweaver. Improved integration across the suite is another time and effort saver. Create an image in Photoshop and save the file. Then open a Dreamweaver file and place the PSD file. That's right. I said place a Photoshop file in Dreamweaver. Now, if you know anything about web design, you know that you can't put a Photoshop file in Dreamweaver on the web. You can't do that. Well, watch what happens. Dreamweaver calls Photoshop and asks Photoshop to create a web document, a ping, a JPEG, or a GIF. Photoshop creates the web document, and Dreamweaver remembers where the image came from. So let's say you later need to change the size of the image. Well, you don't have to open Photoshop. Just change the size in Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver again calls on Photoshop. Photoshop generates a new image in the proper size. Beautiful. Not every feature from every application in the suite plays quite that well with all of its siblings, but most of them do. And I'll bet the next version of the Creative Suite will be even more tightly integrated. Adobe seems to be one of those good examples of a company that's in the right place at the right time with the right teams in place to produce the right applications that will continue to power the information age. Desktop, press, web, audio, or video – Doesn't matter where you are, Adobe is probably there. If you're a developer, you'll want to pay attention to this. If not, just kind of fast forward through this section. In the old days, oh, say, 1999, maybe, the web was pretty simple. HTML was king. Now there's JavaScript, cascading style sheets, XML, Flash, Spry. That's just a few of the major players. So assuming you want your website to look like something that was developed in the current century... You need to understand these technologies, or you need an assistant who does. Dreamweaver is that assistant. The document object model is a hierarchical description of a web document that allows JavaScript and other languages to gain access to elements on the page so that the elements may be changed after the page is loaded in the visitor's browser. At its most basic, the document object model, also called DOM, is a pretty easy concept but as with so many things, in practice it gets just a little more complicated. Working with the document object model requires that you stick your fingers directly into the code, so Dreamweaver's code view springs into action. In previous versions, you could type the document object model description and the rest of the supporting code to perform the intended action. To see if it worked, though, you'd need to open the page in a browser. Well, now, Dreamweaver not only can display what you're typing in that live code view, but it can also help you write the code. You might forget what you called something, or you might forget the appropriate document object model term. Well, in code view, all you need to do is start typing the appropriate document object model specification. As soon as you type the word document and put a period after it in code view, Dreamweaver realizes you'd like to do something with the document object model, so it starts popping up code hints. This feature has been available for JavaScript for several versions, but the document object model component is both new and most welcome. Similarly hints and helps for cascading stylesheet code, a welcome addition. Dreamweaver product manager Scott Faget says that creating CSS rules in previous versions of Dreamweaver was kind of a black art. CS4 makes it a lot easier for those who want to write accurate, standards-compliant cascading stylesheet code to do so without having to surround themselves with stacks of 1,000-page reference manuals. If you want to make a change to a cascading style sheet style, all you need to do is right-click the section that the style applies to in Dreamweaver. The code navigator immediately pops up, and then all you have to do is alt-click the appropriate part of the code that you want, and you'll find yourself in the cascading style sheet file at the position where that particular code is. And as they say on the Jinsu knife commercials, but wait, there's more. You can extend the applications, too. In fact, you can extend most of the Adobe applications. Adobe products are extensible, meaning users can download extra code for them from Adobe's website or elsewhere and then add the code to the application. By doing so, you gain new features. In some cases, they're called plugins. In Photoshop, they're called actions. Some applications call them extensions. And some of the Adobe applications have multiple ways to add functionality, but all of these do add some sort of feature. Some of them are free, many are not. Some are provided as shareware so the user can try them out before buying. A single extension manager handles all the extensions for Adobe applications. Plugins and actions, though, are usually managed by the individual applications. As I've continued to work my way through the CS4 suite, and particularly this week as I've been working with a Macromedia product, I started thinking about the merger of Adobe and Macromedia. Sometimes mergers go really well. Sometimes they're more like a train wreck. Take the merger of the Pennsylvania and New York Central Railroads, for example. Train wreck, figuratively if not literally. On the other hand, Adobe has made intelligent acquisitions over the years and is now in the enviable position of being able to provide applications for desktop publishing, professional publishing, web development, web content, web management, audio production, and video production. What impresses me so much about Creative Suite 4 applications is the extent to which they are aware of each other. Bottom line, Dreamweaver knows what you want and delivers it. It's the HTML application we buy for use at the office. There simply is no website development tool at any price on the planet that provides more capabilities. If you're creating websites with something other than Dreamweaver, I think you're working too hard. If you'd like more information, you can check the TankBiter Worldwide website, and there you will find a link to the Adobe Dreamweaver website. I have been inclined to run all of my applications full screen because that way they have my full attention. I switch constantly from one application to another, and a friend in California tells me I'm crazy. I'm beginning to think that he's right. Not about that crazy part, but about running applications at less than full screen. Okay, so I'll consider that, but only if I can have multiple virtual desktops. I found that Microsoft makes a utility that allows users to create up to four virtual desktops. I tried it out, but stopped using it within a few days because it's entirely incompatible with Excel. Now, you probably know that Excel is a Microsoft product, yet its own extension is incompatible with Excel. Well, then I found Virtual Win. It's a free open-source application that would let me create up to nine individual desktops on the screen. I decided nine was just way too many. At one point, I tried four. Four seemed like the right number. But as it turned out, four was just one too many. What I really needed was just two virtual desktops. and I tended to flip back and forth from one to the other with one set of applications on one desktop and another set of applications on another desktop. I kept the third one just in case I needed to do something completely unrelated to what I was doing on the other two. So that works out really well. It's a free application. It's a good way to organize your work with a free desktop. Free open source application makes it easy to organize. The sole shortcoming is that you are required to use the same wallpaper on each desktop. That was a little annoying at first, but I've learned to live with it. After all, it's free. If you'd like more information, if it sounds like something you might want to use, Check the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll find a link to Virtual Win, which is distributed via SourceForge. And I would rate that as absolutely perfect. So what's the opposite of absolutely perfect? Sometimes it's Microsoft, and sometimes I find myself wondering just what they are smoking in Redmond. That happens when something as simple as a software update goes so miserably wrong ...that after I install an update more than a dozen times... ...I'm still being nagged by the operating system to install the update. You'd think the smart guys and gals at Microsoft would be able to figure these things out. But, unfortunately, you would be wrong. I have Windows download updates, but not install them... ...because I want to see what's involved before I install it. A security update for Microsoft XML Core Services 4.0 showed up in December. Well, that's one I wanted to install... So I installed it. Later, a security update for Microsoft XML Core Services 4.0 showed up, and I installed it. And then a security update for Microsoft XML Core Services 4.0 showed up, and I installed it. After that, a security update for Microsoft XML Core Services 4.0 showed up. Now, wait a minute. Does this seem just a little repetitive to you? I looked at the log found that I had successfully installed this patch 11 times and they're still asking me to install it. So I did some research, found that I should be able to fix the problem fairly easily. All I had to do was get to a command prompt and rename a file, then install the update again. And voila! It worked! Or so I thought. Less than 24 hours later, Microsoft again started sending reminders and displaying the status in the tray. So on the next Patch Tuesday... The icon again disappeared for a day or two. When it came back, I gave up. I visited Windows Update, selected the update, and told Windows to simply hide it. After all, I had installed it successfully. More than 20 times by then. So far, I haven't seen it again. If you need proof that software development is international, just take a look at what's on your computer. Much of what's there is from American companies, of course. But you might be surprised to find just how much of the code is written elsewhere. And you probably have some applications on your computer that are products of distant countries. The Gartner Group, for example, says that four countries are the primary sources of contract programming operations used by software development firms. Those countries are India, Ireland, Canada, and Israel. Other countries that play a significant role include some Central and Eastern European countries, such as Romania, Ukraine, Belarus, Serbia, Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, and Russia. And there are countries on the list that might surprise you. Argentina, Bolivia, Nepal, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Philippines, and Egypt. Now, oddly, Australia isn't mentioned, even though Australia is a significant force in open-source software, as is South Africa. And it's not all just contract programming outside the U.S. Software development firms from around the world have some highly competitive products. Here are just three or four examples. The BAT, my preferred email program, the most powerful, most customizable email application that I've ever seen. In the past 10 years or so, it has progressed from being powerful but obtuse to a program that has retained all of its powerful features but can now be mastered by the average human. It's still a small player in the U.S. market. The bat is popular throughout Europe. It's a product of RIT Labs, a small company in one of the smallest former states of the USSR, Moldova. Then there's AVG Antivirus. Greasoft's antivirus application caught my attention several years ago when I was looking for a replacement for the Symantec product because Norton Antivirus slowed my computer to a crawl. AVG was a delight because it protected the computer without sinking the applications in quicksand. GreeSoft is located in the Czech Republic. And there's Ubuntu Linux. I've talked about this a few times. It's the version of Linux that I recommend for anybody who wants to try that operating system, or use it permanently for that matter. It completely insulates the user from some of the more challenging aspects of installing and maintaining Linux, including a dual boot setup on a computer where the user wants to retain an existing installation of Windows. Ubuntu is from South Africa. Even if you want to be an isolationist these days, it would be difficult, if not impossible. Just as all domestic car companies manufacture automobiles from parts made elsewhere, and as foreign car companies manufacture automobiles in the United States from parts made here and elsewhere, the software on your computer may be foreign-written, even if it carries the name of a U.S. company. At a party on Long Island some years ago, I spoke with the owner of a company that produced in the early days of digital photography an application that could stitch multiple images together and create a panorama. It was a U.S.-based company that used contract programmers in Russia and other countries that had been part of the USSR. The work was carefully segmented so that no one programmer would ever have enough information to recreate the program. and The business owner was quite proud of this accomplishment. To me, it sounded like a recipe for failure. The only people who had a full overview of the application were the product manager and members of the product management team, if the company had one, and they would have all been here in the U.S. If a programmer in Minsk had a great idea that would affect a piece of the application being written in Ijevsk, he couldn't contact the programmer in Ijevsk. He wouldn't even know the person was there. At best, he could make the suggestion back up the chain to the product manager. At worst, he might have an incentive not to make the suggestion because it could take work away from him and give it to the guy in Izhevsk. Well, if the programmer did make the suggestion, and if the program manager liked the suggestion, the program manager might pass it along to the programmer in Izhevsk. But then there would be no discussion between the two programmers regarding implementation of the feature. This is not a good way to build software. When Windows 2000 shipped, this company was unable to bring a product to market that would run on that operating system. And needless to say, the company no longer exists. If you don't trust your programmers, you need to find a way to develop a trusting relationship or you need to employ other programmers. Trying to develop an application without allowing the programmers to communicate shackles the project from the outset in nerdly news you've always wanted to attend macworld perhaps well if so act soon it's too late for this year because the show's already over it was held january 4th through the 8th in san francisco the show was smaller this year than in the recent past and it's been only a west coast show now for several years adobe wasn't at the show this year apple won't be at the show next year But it's been a good run, and it did at least outlast shows such as PC Expo. Still, the promoters must see the writing on the screen. If Macworld has a show in 2015, I will be amazed. If it survives until 2013, even that would be a surprise. On Tuesday, Apple unveiled some new versions of iLife and iWork, a 17-inch MacBook Pro with an 8-hour battery. An 8-hour battery with a trick. It's not user-removable. And also, the availability of music without digital rights management from iTunes. So there were some big stories from Macworld this year. In a way, it's sad to see these mammoth shows go the way of the dinosaur. But they're too big and too expensive for regular users to attend. PC Expo, at its height, ran for four days and four nights around Javits Center and other venues in New York City. To see even half of the show was a week-long commitment. But like so many other things, shows such as PC Expo and Macworld are being replaced by the Internet. The Consumer Electronics Show is another big event that is significantly smaller this year than in the past. Because of the specialized nature of the CES audience, that show may survive for oh, maybe a decade or more. And although it's not a technology show per se, I have to wonder what this year's National Automobile Dealers Association show in New Orleans is going to look like. (laughs) I have put this little segment in nerdly news even though it isn't really news or nerdly, but there was enough feedback from changes introduced last week that it seemed wise to at least acknowledge them. Fortunately, most of the responses were positive and only a few pointed out omissions or errors. I was reminded, for example, that if you are using Internet Explorer, you can scale the page on the web by holding the control key and using the wheel on your mouse, if your mouse has a wheel. This also works for many other Microsoft applications, and I appreciate Matt for providing that reminder. A writer who told me his name was Hey You" pointed out that the link from the bottom of the page to the listen page was broken. Well, while examining that, I found several other links that I had neglected to update. I think all of the links should be working now, and if you find a link that doesn't work, please let me know. Alan at FreeFind, that's the organization that provides the TechBiter worldwide search function, helped me find an obscure problem with a template that is used for the results page. So as a result, we have a working search page again. And from the UK, Andrew suggested a bit of additional white space between articles on the website. That's a good idea. The heads were a bit squished, so I added some spacing there and at both level 2 and level 3 subheads. Good ideas from all. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.